of Peter Priest's podcast, the podcast where a gay veteran and his emotional support Canadian scream into the void about the Mormon Church. If you want to reach us, we are on Instagram at notsopeterpriesthood. And you can email us at notsopeterpriesthood at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy! Bye! I want a pop tart, Mom. Then eat the fucking pop tart. Like I don't know why this is an argument we're having. You can have it, but I want it. Then eat it. Oh, the joys of pop tart. One year old. God damn it. (laughs) Eat the goddamn pop tart. So, Dusty, is it sometimes you feel like your child has been possessed by a demon? Constantly. I think he actually is a demon. <laughs> <laughs> Look who is a professional segue maker. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, woo, I'm impressed. <laughs> What'd you say? I'm just <laughs> so, uh, listeners, we're going to get a little spooky. Also, welcome, Katie. Thank you, thank you, yes. Katie's here. I love it here. This is my favorite party. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the stuff I found, um, I don't know how much background on it. I was reading a book by Silvia Moreno Garcia called Silver Nitrate, and it's about uh, magic and uh, the occult. Is in O-C-C-U-L-T, not just cult. <laughs> the, um, the, and like her, her whole thing. So she mentioned this person that we're going to talk about, and she keeps mentioning it. But the, um, and I was like, who is this person? So I Googled, and I was like, and the things I found, I, you guys, you know, there's not a lot about this person. So I was like, and I kept trying to find, I was like, okay. But then once I found something, okay, we're just going to go into it. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Here's your <Here>. introduction. <laughs> Marjorie Elizabeth Cameron Parsons Kimmel, or Cameron, the name she preferred, was that rarest figures, a seminal invisible artist, poet, witch, beacon of the counterculture she knew everyone and materialized everywhere though now her own name has all but vanished cameron Uh. showed with sculptor edward oh that was that was a thing Uh, okay that was a mistake um she played the scarlet woman in kenneth anger so side note i had when i copied and pasted this had pictures with like subtitles yeah i forgot to take out some of the captions anyway but Oh, so that's what that was. Okay. Makes sense. So she played the Scarlet Woman in Kenneth Anger's 1954 film, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Ooh, Pleasure Dome. What? Can we talk about that much more? (laughs) (laughs) She knew L. Ron Hubbard before he founded Scientology. What? She had a small part in a movie with Dennis Hopper who said that she scared him out of his mind. One of her erotic drawings provoked the LAPD to arrest Wallace Berman, who'd championed her in his legendary journal Semina, 
at his 1957 Ferris Gallery show, arguably the scandal that put L.A. art on the map. And then there, John Jack Parsons, Cameron's first husband, who as a co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, was a crucial contributor to World War II aerospace technologies, while at the same time being the primary American practitioner of infamous English occultist Aleister Crowley's Thelemic Magic. Parsons and Hubbard performed a ritual they called Babylon Working to usher in a new age, but before it could dawn, Parsons blew himself up in 1952 in a rocket experiment gone wrong. Just after his death, Cameron burned her early paintings and drawings in a frenzied ritual of mourning and rebirth. What? I wrote a book about this! So you know I know, I know these people, yeah. This is I've... fucking crazy, yes. So Cameron was one of those people for whom art was life and life is art. So her biography is essential to understanding the drawings, paintings, and poems she produced over the second half of the 20th century, a period in which she didn't just encounter alternative lifestyles, but pioneered them. Like those of many of her, of, her, uh, of her peers, Cameron's life was turned upside down by World War II, but she did not quite fit the profile of the women workers who settled back into the family life after VJ Day. She was more like Rosie the Riveter's jazz-obsessed gal pal who never retreated into the kitchen after the armed forces got her the hell out of her hometown of Belle Plaine, Iowa. As the nation geared up for the war effort, Cameron joined the Navy as a map map maker and was stationed in Washington, D.C. before being disciplined for going AWOL. Oh. Yeah, she was a... She was a badass. All right. After the war, Cameron followed her family to Pasadena, California. One night, she wandered into a wild party at a mansion in, on Millionaire's Row. What? <laughs> she just wandered into a wild party? I love yeah. her. I love yeah. her. Can I beat her? <laughs> yeah. Well, just wait. <laughs> so, oh, okay. We like this part of her. <laughs> just wait. All right. <laughs> uh, and honestly, I, I don't know. It's up to you what you your opinions on her. But anyway, uh, there's a mansion on Millionaire's Row thrown by her future husband, the rocket scientist who <laughs> I love this phrase. The rocket scientist who just so happened to be a warlock. <laughs> <laughs> wow, rocket scientist and warlock. That's yeah. something. Uh, wow. Parsons had earlier written a poem cycle called Songs for the Witch Woman, hoping to conjure a suitably mystical mate. And when the red-haired Cameron walked into the room, she, he was smitten. Ooh. For the next two years, red-haired. Hmm, Katie. <laughs> she is me. <laughs> <laughs> for the next six years, they remained on each other, in each other's thrall, casting astrological charts, as you do, you know, orchestrating <laughs> sex magic rituals for themselves and their acolytes, and experimenting ah! Physical and metaphysical science. It's the casual Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. It's Tuesday, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this so much. Oh man, she is she is magical. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, literally magical. We're bona fide members of the so-called greatest generation, but they belong to a subset we might call the weirdest generation. They persevered through the war and then revolted against the imposition of peacetime conformity, living as free-loving proto-hippies, occult, esoteric, and libertarian-leaning. Hmm. So that's the introduction. <laughs> well, dang, I'm intrigued. <laughs> that's from Season of the Witch by Peter Lennonfeld. Okay. okay. So, um, now we're going to go back. And talk about her relationship with Jack Parsons. Uh, this is from 1946 to 1952. In Pasadena, Cameron ran into a former 
colleague who invited her to visit the large American craftsman style house where he was currently lodging, also known as the Parsonage. The house was so called because its lease was owned by Jack Parsons. Uh, also explains who he was, which we already know. Um, he's a devout follower of Delam. Delam. I'm gonna have to know how to say this. Delama. Delima. Anyway, we're just gonna say Thelema, <laughs> a new religious movement founded by English occultist Alistair Crawley in 1904. Parsons was the head of yeah. the Agape Lodge, a branch of the Thelemite Ordo Templi Orientis. Unbeknownst to Cameron, Parsons had just finished a series of rituals using Enochian magic with his friend and lodger, L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> oh my god. L. With- Ron! Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes. He's so fucking weird! <laughs> He's just like the later version of Joseph Smith with just like more science fiction y yeah. stuff. Yeah. 100%. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All with the intent of attracting an elemental woman to be his lover. Upon encountering Cameron with his with her distinctive red hair and blue eyes, Parsons considered her to be the individual whom he had invoked. After they met at the Parsonage in nineteen forty six, they were instantly attracted to each other. Uh that's and then they um Parsons saw this as a form of sex magic that constituted a part of the Babylon working a right to invoke the birth of Thelemite goddess Babylon onto Earth in human form. <laughs> During a brief visit to New York City to see a friend, Cameron discovered that she was pregnant and decided to have an abortion. Parsons, meanwhile, had founded a company with Hubbard and Hubbard's girlfriend, Sarah Northrup, Allied Enterprises, into which he invested his life savings. It became apparent that Hubbard was a confidence trickster interesting, who tried to flee with Parsons' money, (laughs) resulting in the end of their friendship. (laughs) Returning to Pasadena, Cameron consoled Parsons, painting a picture of Northrop with her legs severed below the knee. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Parsons decided to sell the Parsonage, which was then demolished for redevelopment, and the couple moved to Manhattan. In 1946, he and Cameron married at the San Juan Capistrano Courthouse in Orange County. Orange County, uh, having an aversion to all religion, Cameron initially took on took no interest in Parsons' Thelemite beliefs and occult practices, although he maintain, maintained that she had an important destiny, giving her the magical name of Candida, often shortened to Candy, which became her nickname. <laughs> hey, Candy. <laughs> hey, girl. Hey. Um, let's see. So that. It goes on like they they're just partying they're bohemian they're doing like rich stuff too like they're doing all this occult sex magic and um anyway so <laughs> skip to 1952 uh while in mexico cameron began performing blood rituals in the hope of communicating oh i skipped a part i, skipped a, skipped <laughs> I was a part. like this went from one to a hundred real fucking bad. I skipped a very important part. Okay, so uh, Parsons and Cameron's relationship was deteriorating, and they contemplated divorce um, after they had been, like, doing all this stuff. And um, Cameron developed catalepsy. Parsons suggested that she read these books on astral projection and encouraged her to read um, these other things. And then she didn't accept Thelema, but she became increasingly interested in the occult and the particular use of tarot. And their relationship was de- deteriorating. Um, and then by March 1951, Parsons and Cameron had moved to the coach house at, uh, well, while well, he began work at the Burmite Powder Company constructing explosives for the film industry. 
Um, Cameron produced illustrations for fashion magazines and sold some of her paintings. Parsons and Cameron had decided to travel to Mexico for a few months. On the day before they planned to leave, he received a rush order of explosives for a film set and began work on the order at his house. In the midst of his project, an explosion destroyed the building, fatally wounding Parsons. He was oh. Rough- yeah, he was rushed to the hospital and declared dead. Cameron did not want to see his body and retreated to San Miguel, asking your friend George Frey to oversee the cremation. Oh no! Wow. So they have this like whirlwind romance of like, but like, and he's like trying to get her into this stuff, but then she doesn't really buy into all the thalamite stuff. Uh, while in Mexico, Cameron began performing blood rituals in the hope of communicating with Parson's spirit. During these, she cut her own wrists. As part of these rituals, she claimed to have received a new magical identity, Hilarion. When she heard that an unidentified flying object had allegedly been seen over Washington, D.C.'s Capitol building, she considered it a response to to Parsons' death. After two months, she returned to California and attempted suicide. Increasingly interested in occultism, she read through her husband's papers. Then she embraced his thelemic beliefs. Uh, She came to understand his purpose in carrying out Babylon working, so they wanted to like bring out this goddess in, and she was supposed to be the like bring be the embodiment of the goddess Babylon. Oh, okay. Um, she came to believe that Parsons had been murdered by the police or anti-Zionists, and continued her attempts at astral astral, proje- eh, astral projection to commune with the spirit. Oh man, so it seems like his death really like catapulted her into believing this stuff because she wanted to like communicate with his spirit Mm -hmm. then she started thinking oh man like the government or the police like killed him blah 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 Mm -hmm. she started going a little like out there and yeah i don't know if i like her as much anymore (laughs) a huge part of why we don't know much about her is because she destroyed a lot of her stuff when she after he died so she destroyed a lot of her paint her paintings her writings his writings, she destroyed Why? stuff because she was just in a frenzy of like anger. Like a, she called it like a rebirth into, yeah. but it was, I think she was just grieving and yeah. upset. Yeah. Oh man. I think she was absolutely in love with him and like, they just had this like instant connection and that was r- ripped away from her so quickly that she just went like into grief so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, her mental stability was deteriorating, and she became convinced that a nuclear test on Ein, Ein, oh God, Eniwatok Atoll would result in the destruction of the California coast. There is inconclusive evidence that she was institutionalized in a psychiatric ward during this period, but before having a brief affair with African-American jazz player Leroy Booth, a relationship that would have been illegal at the time. At some point in this period, she stayed with the Thelemite Wilford Wilfred Halbert Smith and his wife, although he thought that she had bats in the belfry and ignored what he <laughs> described as her mad mental <laughs> meanderings. <laughs> the belfry is such a classic line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so There's actually a song. Uh, this new, I don't know if you guys have heard of Queen Herbie, but she has a song called Bats, bats in the Belfry, and I didn't realize that that's what that meant. <laughs> being crazy, anyway. And it's an amazing song. Look it up. But, okay. Um, all right. So th- we're going to look at Thelema a little bit. Um, so she, there's all this stuff. Like, this is really like the kind of the iceberg 
and then I got into like this other stuff. So that's really just like kind of what the introduction into what we're really going to get into. But um, Thelema is a Western esoteric and occult social or spiritual philosophy and new religious movement uh, founded in the early 1900s by Aleister Crowley. So um, Crowley wrote that in 1904, he'd received a text or, text or scripture called the Book of the Law. So this is like, it sounds very familiar, right? Like this a guy gets this like vision of writing mm-hmm. a book, you know, mm-hmm. and then, so I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, this sounds really like very Mormony, you know, like it sounds like Joseph Smith. So then I did this like Google search of like, what does, does, was Joseph Smith and Aleister Crowley, like, were they, did they, did he, did anything of Joseph Smith stuff influence Aleister Crowley? And the mm. answer is yes. <gasps> No way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Alistair Crowley, so Thelemic magic also has the tree of life, important in the magical order as the degrees of advancement in are related to it. Thelemic magic is a system of physical, mental, and spiritual ex- exercises which practitioners believe are a benefit. Crowley defined magic as the science of an art of causing change to occur in, in conformity with will. So... Mm being conformity, like conforming to a, a higher uh, law, basically. And you think of Mormonism, that's yeah. like, you got the law of chastity, you got the word of wisdom, you got all these things that are like higher laws that are right. above. And that's what's supposed to elevate you into the celestial kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what he's talking about. So Crowley did believe that this, after discovering the true will, the magician must also remove any elements of himself that stand in the way of its success. So you're not, you don't focus on yourself, focus on Christ, right? Like right. That's, it's basically the occult, the occultness, uh, occultism of Christianity too. Yeah. Also of Mormonism. Oh, totally. Like Paul, Mormonism Paul. has a lot of occult um, symbolism and like parallels when you think about it, even down to like how Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, it was like with a magic rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. So one goal in the study of Thelema within the magical order of the um, AA, I think I missed something on that one, but AA is the, mm-hmm, I'm really professional. Um, <laughs> anyway, this order that he has um, is for the magician to obtain the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel conscious communication with their own personal demon, thus gaining knowledge of their true will. So, and I was thinking of, like, the Holy Ghost. Also, oh, like, yeah. when you pray, yeah. like, prayer, and, like, all that stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so many parallels. It's fucking creepy. <laughs> Crowley taught skeptical examination of all results obtained through meditation or magic, at least for the student. He tied this to the necessi- necessity of keeping a magical record or a diary, mm-hmm. so keeping a journal. Your journal, so, do that family history, genealogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, remarking on the similarity of statements made by spiritually advanced people of their experiences, he said that 50 years from his time, they would have a scientific name based on an understanding of the phenomenon to replace such terms as spiritual or supernatural. Crowley stated that his work and that of his followers used the method of science, the aim of religion, and that the genuine powers of the magician could in some way be objectively tested. This idea has been taken on by later practitioners of Thelema, chaos magic, and magic in general. They may consider that they are testing hypotheses with each magical experiment. 
the difficulty lies in the broadness of their de definition of success. Uh, yeah. Uh, Crowley believed that he could demonstrate by his own example the effectiveness of magic in producing certain subjective experiments, experiences that do not ordinarily result from taking hashish, enjoying oneself in Paris or walking through the Sahara Desert. All right, so back to Cameron, the fiery redhead. Um, after using the Chinese divination text, the I Ching, Cameron returned to Los Angeles, moving in with Booth until the duo were Duo bleh, I cannot speak today. The duo were arrested for illegal drug possession. They were released on bail. She moved into Druk's Malibu home and through her joined the avant-garde artistic circles surrounding the socialite Samson de Breer. Uh, let's see. So then I'm just going to... Oh, the resulting film of all this was the inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. After seeing the film, the English thelemite Kenneth Grant wrote to Cameron hoping that she might move to England. Uh, Cameron never responded. Through common friends, Cameron met Sheridan Kimmel, and the two entered a relationship. So she was bisexual, at, at least. Um, a veteran of the Second World War from Florida, Kimmel suffered from post-traumatic... Oh, Sheridan's not a female. Um, <laughs> they called him Sherry. So <laughs> that was me putting on gender... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he developed an interest in occultism and became intensely jealous of Parsons' continuing influence over Cameron, destroying Parsons' notes and on the Babylon working that she had kept. So he destroyed some of her notes, too. Because he was jealous that she had of loved a dead him, guy. and he yeah. was dead. What an asshole! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the, she just keeps going around. She gives birth to a daughter, Crystal Eve Kimmel, on Christmas Eve 1955. She allowed her daughter to behave now how she pleased, believing this was the best way to for her to learn. Um, in 1956, Cameron's first ex exhibition was held. Several paintings were destroyed when the gallery caught fire. Around this time, Cameron was introduced to the actor Dean Stockwell. At a public recital of her poetry, he then introduced her to his friend and fellow actor Dennis Hopper. Um, anyway, we're going to... There's more... So, like, she basically just keeps going on and just gets into like her art and um she gets into um the church of satan with anton LaVey. like she gets into that a little bit um in the latter part of the 1960s she moves to santa fe new mexico where she developed a friendship with a sculptor john Chamberlain and appeared in his art movie thumbsuck which was never released i don't like uh, that yeah <laughs> I know. That sounds... Makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, by the mid-1980s, Cameron was focusing to a greater extent on her family life. Um, she kind of, over when she got older, she was like kind of just settled into Santa Fe, and then she eventually died of cancer. Um, so this is where we get... <laughs> I found from Reddit, because I was like interested in like these ties to Mormonism, right? So... Uh, this is from somebody that was posted on Reddit. What is the goal of Setianism? So Setianism is like from Egyptian, like so the god Set or okay. god. Um, apotheosis that is self-deification, so becoming a god. And um, we decide to be become or to manifest. Aptly summed up the word in the word of the aeon of Set, Zeper. That's X E P E R. However, there exists another religion whose goal is apotheosis, namely Mormonism. Yep. 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 
the religion that tells you not to drink warm beverages and sends out missionaries on bikes, the religion of Joseph Smith Jr. There are key differences between the doctrines of Setianism and Mormonism, however, as you have inevitably noticed. Michael, Michael Aquino, in the Book of Coming Forth by Night, places the Egyptian god Set as the head of the pantheon. Set through Aquino tells us to, to approach him as an equal rather than worship him. Through the practice of magic, meditation, and other occult means of gaining power, we rise to the level of Set, perhaps aided by him, but surely not beholden to him. The message is one of well-intended chaos, saying that any person can become a god. Dang! That's just like... Just like Mormon. Well, it's very similar to Mormonism. Mm-hmm. The Mormon approach, he says, is, uh, he says is entirely different. Um, in the King Follett discourse, Joseph Smith states that it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certain the character of God and to know that he was once a man like us, a brazenly different image of the God Elohim that is portrayed by tra- uh, traditional Christianity or any Abrahamic faith, for that matter. Mormon doctrine further expounds that any Mormon man can become a God if he desires. However, the Mormon process of apotheosis could not be more different than the Setian one. Whereas Set calls on Setians to do away with ritual, Elohim calls on Mormons to practice many, many rituals. So yeah. All our temple yeah. ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way to becoming a god in Mormonism is through steadfast devotion to Elohim, practice of ritual, and strict adherence to moral standards. Elohim. <laughs> How weird. Do you think Joseph Smith knew about that other religion? I feel like he has such ties to occult stuff that there had to be a connect. Yeah, the Egyptian thing. Oh, yeah, he loved Egyptian shit. He bought mummies. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think there's a for sure correlation. Yeah, he, like, took parts of that, took parts of other occultism, took parts of Freemasonry and parts of Christianity and, like, mashed it all up. Ooh, side note, you, sp- you brought up Freemasonry. I went to the this ghost town in Montana, and there was a Freemasons, like, lodge there. Yeah. Then we, you couldn't go in it, but you could, like, look through this, like, glass to see it. It was creepy stuff. It was, like, above the, and it was above, like, their school. Like, above their, like, so they have children at the bottom here, and then they got these people doing these, like, rituals <laughs> at the top. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. I just found out my friend's husband is a Mason, and I'm like, oh, can we get high and talk, please? <laughs> <laughs> I probably know a lot of this stuff you did yeah. in there because I did it in the temple because Joseph Smith stole it from you. Yeah, we said something <laughs> about, like, green aprons, and he was like, what now? And I was like, oh, we have them, too. It's fine. You're not special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Okay. So the unfolding of the three relevant ideologies, Mormonism, Thelema, and Setianism, can be understood both as the succession of three eons or and of three Egyptian gods. The eon of Mormonism is also the eon of Osiris, and Ra, as Ra refuses with Osiris every night. The way to apotheosis is strict, just as Ra and Osiris demand loyalty, think they are higher than common gods and men because they are the pharaohs. Joseph Smith, from an occult perspective, is a prophet of Ra Osiris. The mm-hmm. Eon of Horus lies directly between the twin poles of the eons of Osiris and Set. The Eon of Horus is balanced, and Horus tells us what to do as we will, but also that each man and woman and child is sacred, a star. Horus represents a movement from strict adherence to doctrine to mildly bounded will. Play nice, but do what you want besides. 
So the current eon, the eon of set, represents pure will, the polar opposite to the micromanaging doctrines of the eon of Osiris. Set is a god of fruitful chaos, therefore it only makes sense that he would allow any person to become a god regardless of their moral standings. Set is fruitful, yes, and is the easiest path to apotheosis, but is a slightly more hazardous path than the previous two. Nonetheless, the practice and dedication required to make oneself a god deters most of those of who would use it to do harm, as many of them do not have the patience to practice the occult. The three relevance, eons and gods, can be associated with the three pillars of the tree of life. Set is the pure bliss of the rightmost pillar, horse is the balanced middle pillar, and Osiris Ra is the leftmost strict pillar. Crazy, huh? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's so nuts. It's so nuts. It just seeing, okay, so I wanted to get into, okay, so the cares, I got in a little into the weeds, so I need to like kind of skip some of this stuff, so, because it doesn't, <laughs> so there's this thing that I found, though, <laughs> called The Beast and the Prophet, Alistair Crowley's Fascination with Joseph Smith. Oh, What? So, magic and re- religion in the new revelations. Um, so, not all. It's, okay, this is written by Massimo Introvine. Um Not all new revelations, in, and indeed, not all angels are equal. Although the angel Moroni's visitations to Joseph Smith and the angel Iwas revelation to Aleister Crowley, so both of them saw angels, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God! May be classified as new revelations. It would be hard to imagine more divergent re- revelations. In fact, there are more a number of different categories of new revelations. For example, special cal- special categories may be found among literally thousands of new religions in Africa, among groups in the is- Islamic world like the Ahmadis, and among a gr- growing number of large new religions uh, in Japan. Uh, let's see. So, to many observers of new revelations, one principal difference which has emerged is the difference between religious and magical new revelations. So, the very possibility that this distinction implies a theoretical framework framework within which it is possible to establish a distinction between religion and magic. So, um, <laughs> uh, see. So, number two, early Mormonism was a religion and or magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he used his like he used his magic stone to find treasure, but then it was magically moved by de- what was it demons that moved them? They didn't get there fast enough, and so the wills of Satan or something like that. Yeah, like, like it was it. like the yeah, it's, it's yeah. magic. It's all magic. So. <laughs> A case in point which demonstrates that the distinction between religious and magical new revelations is not as clear as one would like in early Mormonism. For the historian of religion, there is no doubt that Joseph Smith's revelatory enterprise has all the features of the religious experience and almost no features of the magical experience. On the other hand, magic connections between Joseph Smith and his family and his revelations have been noted, particularly but not exclusively in anti-Mormon literature. Three main areas have been discussed. The presence of folk magic in the early experiences of Joseph Smith and his family, the relations of his Joseph Smith and other Mormon leaders with Freemasonry and the Masonic element in temple ceremonies, a consistent fascination of a number of magical and occult leaders and teachers with Joseph Smith. Yep. Uh, so magical and occult leaders fascinated by Joseph Smith, the case of Aleister Crowley. One of the most curious incidents in the history of anti-Mormonism began in 1984 when William Schnoblin, 
who had become and his wife who had become Mormons in 1980 were converted to an evangelical Christianity. Eventually, Schnoblin, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Schnoblin, Schnoblin, <laughs> Schnoz, Schnobbly, I don't know, Schnoblin, Schnoz Goblin, <laughs> Schnoz Goblin. <laughs> These schnozberries taste like schnozberries. And to the, okay, so eventually Schnoblin was introduced to Ed Decker, a well-known evangelical anti-Mormon, and to the latter's organization, Saints Alive. Um, Let's see. I think there was, sorry, I'm trying to, Schnoblin, basically, he, okay, I gotta make sure that I'm, Getting all the things. Beginning in 1986, Schnabelin became Decker's spokesman for the alleged magical and satanic character of Mormonism and went so far to claim that the Mormon apostle James E. Faust admitted to Schnabelin in a private interview in 1981 that the Mormon temple ceremony was a witchcraft ritual, ritual and that Lucifer was, in fact, the god of the temple. What? <laughs> Do you think he really what? said that? I don't think he well, really said that. He's got footnotes. On that one, but I could I could check. Well, I, I mean, I mean, yeah, I I'm know. sure like that 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 guy could have said that. But do you think James E. Faust really said that? I don't know. That's what I, I'd have to look into that. Listeners, if you know, <laughs> so crazy. Uh, apart from this extreme claim, one wonders why Schnabelin was taken seriously by some anti-Mormons. He seemed indeed uniquely qualified to confirm the magical and even satanic connection in Mormonism. That was interesting. It always like kind of creeped me out that we had Satan and gate, you know, in the temple. Like it just it seemed weird to like, why would we, we barely even talk about him, you know, like as a, yeah. and then all of a sudden in the temple, you're just like, Oh, there he is. Like there's he has like an more actual like, time than Jesus does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's very weird. He's a very big part of the temple ceremony, which is, yeah, it always made me very uncomfortable, too, because I'd be like, why, why, and why is he hot, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no depictions of him, now that I think about it, he's not even depicted in, like, paintings or anything. No, it's always, like, a mist of darkness or whatever, but he's so prevalent in the temples are and you actually see like a an actor portraying him. yeah and he looks right at you yeah yeah it's very creepy Weird. yeah he looks that one part where he looks into the screen yeah they don't stick to these although they've changed and, it now because he doesn't i heard he doesn't do that anymore he just like says it in a softer voice and it's not so like not so threatening <laughs> you, think still, you think he still does his sassy cape with oh, I, oh god i hope so <laughs> The cave. God, so good. Part. <laughs> Although I hated that he would leave. I just was like, it was creepy, but I was like, he was my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> it's highly entertaining. Know, but, <laughs> uh, let's see. So, I'm trying to get to. I should have researched this a little better before I got on, but it's fine. You'll get the point of it. Um, it's just interesting that, so I had listened to podcasts about Aleister Crowley, and then I'm just never even thought of, like, the connection that he would be, like, influenced by Joseph Smith at all. Yeah, I would have never put that together. Yeah. Um, oh, there's this one. Okay, so. Uh, so there's this. Uh, 
Moonchild. The in Moonchild, Mary Deste Sturgis or Sister Vericam. I don't know. Vericam, as Crowley magically called her, becomes Lisa La Jufra. Uh, she is connected, contacted by a benevolent order led by what are these names? Simon If. Just okay. And engaged in a great Simon work. If. Yeah, <laughs> IFF. <laughs> Simon says if. <laughs> uh, so this is a. Let's see. This is a book that she. Anyway, uh, she is this person. This Lisa Lagufra is contacted by Simon If and engaged in a great work. She has to pass through various imitation initiations to go to Italy, where near Naples she could finally give birth to a magical child. Of course. Oh, obviously. <laughs> Simon If was an anti-Sherlock Holmes created by Crowley for his detective stories who solved mysteries through occult insight and Eastern wisdom rather than through Holmesian rationalism. Unfortunately, at the end of the novel, Lisa Lejufria prefers to follow a human love rather than the great work and the experiment fails. In chapter 16 of the novel, Lisa uh, is in Posilippo. In the villa, villa where Crowley actually stayed with Mary de Sturgis and wrote book four with Cyril Gray, the man who would be the father of her magical child. She watches the stars and has a vision of the number of great souls. Maximilian, once emperor of Mexico, General Bullinger, um, all these people, tragic figures. Uh, at a certain stage of the vision, this is this ties to... All gave way to a most enigmatic figure. It was an insignificant face and form, but the attributions of him filled all heaven. In his sphere was primarily a mist, which Ilial instinctively recognized as malarious, and she gave God an an impression rather than a a vision of an immense muddy river rushing through swamps. And then she saw that from this man's brain issued phantoms like pigeons. (laughs) What the fuck? This is a lot to process. I know. And these names. Mr. Crowley, I'm sorry, you're too extra for me. He's like, he's a he's a fantasy writer almost yeah. with Susan and yeah, his friend bizarre yeah, names and then a muddy poop river and like random <laughs> pigeons. I'm what? Oh, so they were. <laughs> so the, these phantoms come out of this person's brain, and they were neither Red Indians or Israelites, yet they had something each of, of each in their bearing. I don't. In his hand was a book held uh. over his head, and the book itself was guarded by an angel, angelic figure whose face was extraordinarily stern and unbeautiful, but who scattered with wide hands the wealth of life, children, and corn and gold. <laughs> <laughs> Unbeautiful isn't a word, sir. Yeah, <laughs> it's ugly, okay. And behind yeah. all this was a great multitude, and about them were the symbolic forms of exile and death, and the hideous laughter of triumphant em- enemies. All this seemed to weigh heavily upon the little man, and uh, had created it. Uh, Ilial, Lisa, thought that it was seeking incarnation for the sake of its forgetfulness, yet the light in his eyes was so pure and noble and magnetic that it might... It's all just gobbledygook so so lest some readers should not recognize the people who were neither red indians nor israelites yet they had something of each in their bearing as nephites and the book 
as the Book of Mormon, a footnote by Crowley informs that us that the enigmatic figure seen by Lisa was indeed Joseph Smith. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> so he had visions of Joseph Smith and wrote it in this book. <laughs> this man was off his goddamn rocker. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow imagine having a vision of joseph smith that that is the most terrifying part of this story honestly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> like i you know what now you, you've done this to me and i'm probably gonna have a dream of joseph smith tonight thanks a lot <laughs> with yep. pigeon ghosts or whatever the fuck it was I'm sorry, I'm just still stuck on the pigeon phantom. <laughs> we were at the zoo yesterday. We showed the children tigers. We showed the children penguins. We went to all the things. And then a seagull landed in front of us. And the kids were like, ah, a seagull! <laughs> and that's all I can think of is being like, having like, a vision of yeah, pigeons. Yeah, <laughs> of pigeons. Yeah. Like, oh, could have been any other animal, but no, yeah, definitely right? a pigeon. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I don't know if you guys remember us talking. I don't know. If, were you on this uh, conversation about the... You were with the first um, Sherlock Holmes book about yes. Scotty and Scarlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another possibly and admittedly more tenuous connection between Crowley and Mormonism is a negative one. If the enemies of my enemy are my friends, Crowley may have taken notice that Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes book, A Study in Scarlet, was basically basically an anti-Mormon book. Mm-hmm. Crowley intensely disliked Conan Doyle for a number of reasons. First, Conan Doyle was a prominent spiritualist, and occultists like Crowley despised spiritualists as adepts of a lower, if not intrinsically stupid, form of magic. <laughs> Okay, pot calling the kettle black there. Like you're, (laughs) I do cool spiritual magic. You do the fake stuff. Stupid, you're stupid. You're not as smart as me. I keep thinking of like the like World of Warcraft people like being mad at Dungeons and Dragons people or something. Yeah. Like, ah, uh, you're we have a video game. You've got this board, board game. game. Yeah. <laughs> you're more of a nerd than me. Yeah. <laughs> you LARP differently than me. I'm cooler. <laughs> no offense to LARPers that are No but, No, no well, offense to LARPers <laughs> or World of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons. I think they're all cool, but yeah. You you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, my cheeks are hurting. Okay, the efforts of the novelist to promote spiritual spiritualism were regarded by Crowley as evidence of Conan, Conan Doyle's senile dementia. <laughs> uh, second, Conan Doyle considered and finally rejected the idea of going, joining the Golden Dawn in 1898 through a contact with Dr. Henry Pullen Burr. Burry and Dr. Robert W. Let's get to the good stuff here. Third, and perhaps most important, Crowley did not like the rationalism of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, even one passage where he proves of a feature of Sherlock Holmes, the selective study, ignoring all that falls outside his work, Crowley is far from being complimentary towards the de- detective or his creator. He doesn't like him because he's rational? Yeah. Did I hear that right? Yeah, he did. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, this is what he says. One of the few gleams of intelligence shown in the works of Conan Doyle is where Sherlock Holmes Sherlock Holmes is ignorant that the earth goes round the sun and on being told says that he will at once try to forget it. The case chosen exhibits the chooser as imbecile for elementary astronomy is certainly important to the detective, but the general idea is sound. It's basically like, uh, fuck you, Sherlock Holmes. You're not, I don't know. Anyway. Like what a, what a strange, um, like rivalry, like 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 bone to pick. Yeah. You know, it's like, why, why do you even care? Weird. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, so back to the masonry stuff. So the third possible link between Crowley and the Mormons has to do with the former's relationship with Freemasonry. Since the 18th century, regular, regular, quote-unquote, Freemasonry governed by the Grand Lodge of England and by its counterparts outside England has coexisted side-by-side with other bodies alternately, alternatively labeled as irregular and clandestine. Since the question of regularity within Freemasonry is less clear than many, Freemasons prefer to believe Alec Howe, writing in a rather official Masonic publication, suggested that certain dubious rites and groups be called fringe masonry rather than ill. <laughs> I like how they they like they're they're like we're the regular masons. Yeah, yeah. Those are the weird fringe masons. Just like right? the Mormons are like we're the the real, the regular, the, the regular, stream, yeah, the regular members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Those fundamentalists, they're just fringe, you know. Mm-hmm. They're the weirdos. Right? <laughs> Although, if you talk to a fundamentalist, they're like, "No, we're the mainstream yeah, church. We're the real, the yeah, we're <laughs> the real church. They're the ones that strayed, and that you know, they're the ones that twisted God's word or whatever." I mean, the more you look at it, the more I realize that they were like they follow more of what Joseph Smith thought. No, yeah. The fundamentalists follow <laughs> Joseph Smith, like, exactly. And the main mainstream Mormons don't. Like, if Joseph Smith was alive right now, he'd be like, you got the mainstream Mormons, you guys got this wrong. Like, this isn't what I meant. I'm going to go over here to the fundamentalists. <laughs> uh-huh. They, they figured it out. They actually listened to me. Old brides, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Grimy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there exists in Utah a body of anti-Mormon Masonic literature which claims that Joseph Smith per- operated a clandestine lodge in Nauvoo, although it was originally chartered by proper Masonic authorities. In time, bitter feelings develop between Mormons and Masons, and while Freemasonry takes pride in admitting members of whatever creed or religion, Mormons, although only in Utah, were the only members of a religious group to be officially excluded from by regular Freemasonry. Oh my god, that's so interesting. And right? also so funny because <laughs> they do the same stuff like the rituals are the same yeah. but the, the masons are like no like we're doing it right and yeah you, you ripped us off and you're doing it right <laughs> yeah do they still exclude mormons in utah from freemasonry do you know oh i don't know that's a good question that's interesting um, i don't even know if i've seen a, like a masonic lodge in utah but i'm sure yeah. there is one hmm. i'm sure there is i yeah i don't know I, we have one here yeah. in town Hmm. Well, there's Utah, one but... here in um <laughs> there's one here in Idaho Falls, but I don't know. I mean that's eh. I think that Freemasonry is so interesting and it's just like this huge boys club and it's yeah. like doing yeah. networking, right? Basically mm-hmm. yeah. networking with yeah. weird like rituals thrown in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Super yeah. strange. <laughs> <sighs> not that not that we can judge because <laughs> the stuff that we've done. 
Yeah. We used to get up and chant the young women's theme. And listeners, um, <laughs> listeners, we just recorded another episode that we'll be releasing. And Dusty was able to recite the young women's theme still. Almost all of it. Almost This all many of it. years later <laughs> and in her 30s. Like, <laughs> yeah, we we've... If I could get, like, the Articles of Faith and the Young Women's Theme and, like, all that shit out of my brain, I would be, I would have so much room for, like, know. cool stuff. <laughs> I've thought about that, too. Like, all the hymns and everything that, like, are just stuck in there. And I'm like, why can't I remember cool shit? Yeah. I can't remember cool shit, but I can remember, like, this dumb stuff from the church. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm standing at my sink wondering if I've taken my medication or not. I know. Yeah. I did that tonight. I'm like, wait, was that this morning that I took it or yesterday yeah. morning? Yeah. But no, don't yeah. worry. I can just recite every single yeah. children's hymn in the in the primary songbook for you. <laughs> yeah. I hate it so much. <laughs> um, did you know that also Alistair Crowley sent anti-Christmas cards to his friends? Oh, I love that. He did. <laughs> like. Like on Christmas or around Christmas yeah. time. Oh my God, what a loony too! I I, yeah. I love him and hate him. <laughs> yeah, he sent, and he also um in one of his books he talks about how a male child of like perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory victim, um and that he added that he sacrifices sacrifices about 150 male children a year and like it was this big to do but he was actually making a joke about ejaculation (laughs) (laughs) okay i like that (laughs) and like people were like he's advocating for human sacrifice and then like people were like he's talking about whacking it (laughs) (laughs) his sperm sperms <laughs> not the fingies. Not the fingies, not the spermy sperms. Ew. Oh, yeah. Human sacrifice. Homosexual affairs and stuff. So, you know, it's like he was just all over the place. He's just anyway. Yeah. Um so this thing. So, but what kind of sympathy did Crowley actually manifest toward Mormonism and Joseph Smith? Surely it was not the usual respect one would expect to be shown for religious leaders. Crowley knew nothing of such a respect <laughs> shown by his treatment of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in his book of the Book of the Law, uh, that which the angel Iwas. I think that's how you say it. A I W A A S S. It's a ass in there. So I really, <laughs> I really hate. I really hate how he names things. Another, another, yeah, another like um, parallel between him and J Dog is J Dog's made up names in the Book of Mormon, where we're just like, how did you? This is the most dumbest name. Yeah. You mom or whatever it is. Kill them and eat. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so, oh, I saw horses at the zoo. Oh, wait. No, they were tapirs. Sorry. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> Common mistake. From Common <laughs> mistake. Yeah. My, yeah. my bad. They're obviously tapirs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for Crowley, the Book of Mormon was surely a vision of Joseph Smith. The Nephites were, as described in Lisa's vision in Moonchild, phantoms like pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Coming from the head of Joseph Smith. <laughs> I need, we need artwork. Listeners, yeah. 
someone make artwork. Or Jake, you could draw it. You're an artist. Draw Joseph Smith with his head opening and phantom pigeons coming out. (laughs) I'd wear that on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. Joseph's angel, however, though. So this, it's. I think it's funny that like. So he he got after Sir Arthur Conan Doyle saying you're character in your book is terrible he's too <laughs> rational mine's better his name's Simon if but you know whatever he's, not, he's better than yours and then there's he's like talking about Joseph Smith he's saying well um yours your angel was extraordinary stern and beautiful but mine was had ass in his name so you know like, mine had ass in his name so he was better yeah he had a lot of junk in the trunk so you know we just mm-hmm. wow so he says joseph's angel however though extraordinarily stern and unbeautiful oh stop with that blah blah stop with that word (laughs) create the wealth of life children and corn and gold for great multitude joseph smith was this is all from alistair crowley joseph smith was noble whereas persecutors laughter was hideous Crowley was, above all, an egomaniac. In all the heroes and saints he worshipped, he saw something of himself. Joseph Smith received a book by an angel, as Crowley himself had received the Book of the Law from (laughs) Imos in Cairo in 1904. (laughs) (laughs) He called Joseph Smith noble? Yeah. (laughs) Part of being a pedophile is noble. (laughs) Oh, so on Twitter, so this, this, so, um, I gotta do my little t- Twitter digression because late this girl, oh, what's she saying? She was like, cause it's been like all over about Fanny Alger and like this, like, and this, like that discussion just keeps coming up and like, it's a trending one on Exmo Twitter right now, yeah. Mormon Twitter. And I was like, I said, Oh, you're defending a pedophile. Good job. And she's like, I'm not defending a pedophile. I'm defending the prophet of God. I'm like, sure, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, these are the, that's the same thing. Or he's not a prophet of God, but they think he is, but he's also a pedophile. So yeah. yeah. I told her, I was like, and eh, the prophet part is a matter of opinion, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so apparently, let's see. Crowley. Oh, let's see. Where'd it go? The Book of Law from Iwas was in Cairo in 1904. Joseph Smith founded a new religion. Crowley made no secret of his conviction that his new religion, Crowley, Crowleyanity? No. <laughs> would eventually offer gathering a great multitude. Joseph Smith and his multitude were persecuted by triumphant em- em- enemies with a hideous laughter. Crowley felt persecuted throughout his life. Crowleyanity. <laughs> That's, that's hideous. That's unbeautiful. That's unbeautiful. <laughs> uh, so the aftermath of Crowley's fascination, uh, the result of our investigation. So this whole thing, this paper has been talking about, but the um, uh, are confirmed by the attitude of contemporary new magical movements towards Joseph Smith. Basically, so what they say is that um, Mormonism, like, has you have all these occultists, like people that had come out and they usually defer back to Joseph Smith. Like they, in some oh. way. Yeah. Oh. Uh, we find some examples in the new spiritualist channeling groups in some occult movements orders and in the flying saucer cults. <laughs> the latter <laughs> phenomenon with thousands of followers, followers, which is now receiving appropriate scholarly attention. 
have often been founded by people with an occult or magical background who have translated their mystic antecedents into a space language acceptable for UFO devotees. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Mormonism has a long history of relations with spiritualism. While spiritualists like Conan Doyle were convinced that Joseph Smith had been a medium without knowing it, Mormon leaders of the caliber of Parley P. Pratt, P.P. Pratt, P.P. Pratt, P.P. Pratt, Orson Pratt, George Q. Cannon, and later James E. Talmadge crossed swords. Ew. Ew. Oh. Oh. Sword oh. fight. Sword fight. fight. Don't cross the streams. <laughs> Say it that way. Cross swords with contemporary spiritualists who argue that their revelations were only a counterfeit of God's true revelations to the Mormon prophets. I mean, that's always how it is, though. Like your revelation isn't real, mine is. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And like, had Joseph not been like successful in gaining followers, he would just be one of these other ridiculous people we're yes. talking about with like Crowley and you know Crowley and. The- Harry and whatever the fuck. Yeah. You know, Ron Hubbard, he was successful too. Like, he's a nutcase. And if you look at his writings before he started Scientology, he's a crazy person, basically. But because he had success, now it's a religion. Like, it's the difference between a crazy occult nutter and a religious leader (laughs) is people who follow him. Yeah, it's just if you get get people Mm -hmm. in money. It's very yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so to to close off, there's this little um, kind of breaks it down, and I probably should have just used this, but you know, it was fun to hear about the pigeon. Thing. <laughs> 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 very fun. <laughs> Uh, All these examples and others which could be added confirm the conclusion we made with respect to Aleister Crowley that all references to Joseph Smith and Mormonism in contemporary magical movements are either very broad and general or extrinsic. Some notice that both their own sacred books and Joseph Smith's sacred scriptures are new revelations that claim common in channeling, but they fail to distinguish between magical and religious revelations. Different things may coexist or appear at the same time in the history of religion. Other groups show sympathy for Joseph Smith because he was persecuted, and they also feel persecuted. This is obviously something Joseph Smith may have in common with hundreds of historical figures in the world of religion, magic, and politics, or the arts. So, um, Some magical groups are interested in angels and in Moroni as an angel. Angels, however, appear both in magical and in religious experiences, but the contexts are different. In some groups, notably in Eli's Mental Science Institute, elements of Mormon theology are used, but even in this case, they are isolated from the normal Mormon context and used as bricks to build new structures whose orientation is wholly magical. Finally, movements and leaders promoting the largest possible sexual freedom, such as Crowley and uh, such as Crowley, may remember something they have read about Mormon polygamy. Yep. However, if that, such is the case, they ignore almost everything about Mormon polygamy as practiced by 19th century Mormons and as assessed by modern scholarship and very superficially feel that because they're, both their group and the early Mormons conflict with the established culture and religion about the concept of family relations, they have something in common. Yeah. So it's like, and they have, they have ties and there's definitely like, I don't know. Anyway, that was a journey, right? So went from that was- to um, 
that's how yeah, i don't know maybe that was a little more too much of a what's the word the flow of thought thinking kind of like the way it, it just how i studied it like i was researching it and i just wanted to talk about cameron for sure like that was how it like started but then i decided discovered the whole thing with alistair crowley and I was influenced by Joseph Smith. It's just wild. That's so <laughs> fascinating. I would have never known. I would have never even guessed. Yeah. yeah. I remember um, conversations about Aleister Crowley happening like when I was a kid, because I feel like a lot of people, like my friends' parents stumbled into like that whole like, oh, he like really liked Joseph Smith. And I remember like Aleister Crowley's name being like synonymous with the devil. And so mm-hmm. when I became an adult and I kept seeing his name on text and stuff, I would be like, okay, what actually? I was like intrigued by it because it was something that I was scared of as a child, right? And so then to yeah. find out like more and more like the connection to like so many different like crazy people, <laughs> it was like, I, yeah, it was a rabbit hole. I love it. Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. And, you know, when I left Mormonism, um, as we all know, it's like a super crazy journey when you leave of like figuring out what you actually believe now and in terms of like spirituality and stuff. So I went through this phase for a couple of years where I fully was into like witchcraft and like all the like doing spells and like the candles and the crystals and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now that you've pointed this out, it makes a lot of sense that that was like my next step because the natural transition. Yeah. Yeah. Because of like that magical spiritualism side of Mormonism that it has its roots in. Right. Of like, yeah. Oh, you can still like do whatever with your, your magic. And I, yeah. so I like clung to that for a while. And then I was like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't believe in it anymore, but it was like, that's, that's like a revelation to me of like, oh, no wonder that's like how my brain processed leaving, you know? Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of people that get into like new age stuff when they leave the church because yeah, it's it's a natural funnel yeah. because it's all based off of like folklore and yeah. folk magic and the elements. Yeah. And, stuff. and like the, the tarot and all that stuff yeah. is just like a different way of like processing like even like the paranormal shit or whatever it's like mm-hmm. now my brain can like slowly deconstruct and yeah and, oh, and then yeah. eventually you can you can come to a point where that maybe you stay in that for the rest of your life or you're like okay like I processed it now I can just I I don't believe in anything really but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well and uh there's that docuseries on Netflix called how to become a cult leader which I started it's I'm like mm. two episodes in and one of the first things they talk about we might even do episodes on it but um one of the first things they talk about is the like the first first step to becoming a cult leader is that like there's like this um a thread that you can follow through these cults where they've had like the spiritual vision to begin with right yeah and so and if you think of joseph smith like that's the spiritual vision the first vision and then also the angel moroni and everything so and then it when it comes down to it, it's just, it's American folklore. It's basically, it's based on a myth and based on like this idea that he had this vision. That's all it is. And then like yeah. throughout the Book of Mormon, there's the the tree of life vision. There's all these other like elements of magic that he's put into it. Magic uh-huh. quote unquote that he's put yeah. into it. Like, because he was influenced by Egyptian mythology. He was, he was intrigued with folklore and magic. Yeah. And, 
he had like the divining rods and was like yeah. a treasure hunter with his rock like this he said yeah it really is it's just a a myth that that caught on and he got followers and now there's 16 million of them yeah. yeah, and we always we always find these like folk tales and these fairy tales that give us answers as to like where we came from. Yeah. You know, like I grew up on Russian fairy tales about like how Russia was created and stuff. And so it's showing these people how America came to be. It's their folklore of like, well, they actually came from Israel and they, that's yeah. where the population comes from. It doesn't like it's that's what people crave, right? Is like, well, how did how did our country start? Was it, you know, yeah. a, a goddess in the Hawaiian islands who lifted up a place for the people? Like, we always want those stories. And he was very intelligent in like giving you that answer. Yeah, you want to know where, came from. where we came from, what's our purpose, and where we're gonna go after yeah. we die. Like, it's just in human nature to want mm-hmm. to know that. That's like what every religion is, right? It like yeah. gives you those answers so you don't have to think about it too much or have that anxiety about where did I come from what's my purpose and where am I going yeah exactly he hands it to you and yeah here I can answer that all for you yeah and that's exactly what they tell you in the oh man you just parked something in my from the mission like that's exactly like one of the like the pass along cards had like the little where where are we going where do we what are we where would you come from? Where are you going? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Literally, like, rope by rope. That's, like, wow. exactly what missionaries are supposed to teach people. Yeah. yeah. It is, yeah. Well, I get the JW things in my um, mailbox all the time. It says, why are we here? What I do. I get next? those, yeah. too. And it's, like, we have the answers for you because people do crave that. And especially yeah. vulnerable people that are, mm-hmm. like, going through something or grieving or whatever it might be. They want yeah. that comfort of, like, oh, if I join this organization, I can see my loved ones again after I die, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's very manipulative. Yeah. And if you think about it, the, um, I guess the final, like what I, cause sometimes I think of like, how did this like religion that, you know, it, they were persecuted for so long and then they, you know, for reasons, but you know, like the, um, <laughs> they weren't the best people, but like the, um, the martyrdom is what solidified it into becoming something what it is today. Like Absolutely. they, they lean so heavily on that. that like if this man was willing to die for this and he was our greatest prophet and he had this vision and people were willing to kill him for it, then that obviously it's true. So that's, that is such a good point. You guys, what do you think would have happened with the church if Joseph Smith hadn't been killed? Isn't I that, don't think, I don't I think, think it, stuck. I think somebody else in leadership would have had him taken out. Yeah. because yeah. of how things were happening with Brigham Young and, like, that whole yeah. situation. It, it would not be what it, it is today. No. Or yeah. it would have fizzled out, yeah. It, I yeah. think it would have fizzled, like, honestly, because I think him dying and Brigham Young taking control made it what it is today mm-hmm. and made even, like, the fundamentalists what they are today. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, the fundamentalists if, are, like, they worship Brigham Young, yeah. so. Yeah, like, if he hadn't died, that is so, I've never even thought about that. That's kind of blowing my mind. You're right. The martyrdom really did steal it in and, and made people more devoted. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's why we keep singing praise to the man, you know. And yeah. Because like, he's... Yeah. He communed with Jehovah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh, my goodness. Well, thanks for coming wow. on, Jeffy. That was wow. fascinating. Thank you for, <laughs> for inviting me and including me in that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> our, our next read together is going to be by Alistair Crowley. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm putting my foot down. 
<laughs> I don't think I can get through it. 